to challenge what you think, to be open to it, to realize that so much of what we think is theory and hasn't been proven. But if you're open to be proven wrong, like any good scientist is, then man, some of my favorite mentors fit that model. They're curious and they're willing to be wrong. And sometimes that can be hard to be in that position. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation, and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast. Before I introduce this week's guest, guys, leave me a review so I can read it on air. I would really appreciate it. It helps other people find the show. And I just like reading these things on air. So I'm here this afternoon with Kit Alowitz, Director of Organizational Behavior at Anderson Hauser Group and author of Don't Pull the Chicken Switch. Kit, how's it going? Hey, Paige. I'm doing great today. Thanks for letting me be on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about how you began in your career. Yes. I read a book that'll maybe come up later in our conversation that really set a profound direction to my life. I ended up going to college, university, got a master's in it, ended up in working for Stephen R. Covey, author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I really found my connection in that, mostly because the book, the concept is kind of a nice sequential way to think about maximizing your efficiency and effectiveness. I ended up working for him for almost 10 years, then decided I didn't know anything else. And so I got out into other industries and worked in several industries. And here I find myself today, what, 25, 30 years later, working in metrology for Anderson Hauser. That's great. That's great. So let's kind of talk about some of the challenges you had to go through, because I mean, that's quite the transition. Yes, I've experienced challenges in every different industry. I mean, this is my fifth different industry that I've worked in over my 30, 25, 30 years. Uh, I've worked in corrugated metal. I've worked in home building. I've worked in straight up consulting. So each time the people part of it, if you believe that people are more similar than different, which is kind of at my core, then whether you're working, regardless of the industry, you're going to find a lot of a lot of similarities between people, and yet the business and how you run and the intricacies for each one can be overwhelming at times. So I had to learn several different businesses. And what has been absolutely awesome for me is applying what I learned, you know, as a young 19, 22 year old guy going through college to the people business. It's given me opportunities to lead teams and be a manager and leader in all of these different organizations. And what I find so fascinating is if you're willing to invest the time in understanding that people get things done, organization wants you to lead the business. So even here at Anderson Hauser, I'm not a degreed engineer. I have a master's in organizational behavior, and yet I've been able to lead teams as we try to better take care of our customers. So the transition has been from industry to industry has always been a challenge. The other maybe funny, interesting transition is 
I'm 50 years old, and until more recently, I looked a lot younger. And if I get my hair real short, I look younger. But when I was in my 20s and even in my 30s, the biggest thing I got was, wow, I'm not sure I should listen to you. You look like you're 12. And I (laughs) get this page. I even did crazy things early on when I worked for a consulting company, early when I was in my middle 20s. I worked for a firm that worked. We did most of our work with the U.S., Air Force, International Affairs. And so I was working with colonels and lieutenant colonels. And I got to the point where I was getting, feeling enough uncomfortable that I even tried coloring the sides of my hair just to add a few years. (laughs) That's the best thing I've heard this week. Uh, I was looking for everything because I'd walk in a room and first of all, I'd you know be wearing a suit and I couldn't even find a white shirt without going to the kids section that I could button the top button and I couldn't stick you know all my fingers in between the neck and the shirt collar. And so I'd walk in and I could see the look on these seasoned men and women, many of them colonels. Their expression was, who in the heck is this guy? And he's about to teach us or walk us through problem solving or do process diagramming. And so it got in my head. So I That's finally- That's very intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. So I gave in, colored my hair. That didn't seem to help much either. So I just worked ferociously to become as competent as I could in the field and my communication skills so that as quickly as possible, I could add value, show my competence, and maybe reduce some of that anxiety that I perceived on the other side of the table. Got it. Yeah, that's a lot to swallow. So what exactly does a director of organizational behavior do? (laughs) It's a great question. Yeah, I've never heard that term before, especially in our industry. Yeah, one of the reasons I love working for Anderson Hauser, and I've been here over 10 years now, is I work for our general manager, be synonymous with a CEO and a management team that they're just super focused on the customer. And, you know, that obsession to try to take care of our customers has led to us trying to be as progressive as possible. And how can we take care of our greatest asset that then allows for a preeminent customer experience? And that's the employee base. And so within our group here, we thought, listen, organizational behavior, you could argue there's actually no such thing as organizational behavior. It's actually individual behavior collectively rolled up. Yeah. So I really focus on the people side of our business, thinking through the lens of, we call it systems thinking. If everything is interconnected, if how our ability or inability to take care of the customer is related to thinking of it as a one big ecosystem or a greenhouse. My job is to try to help our leaders and our employees stay in sync with for every action, there is an equal or opposite reaction. So think in systems because if we want to get the behavior that we need, we need to roll up all those behaviors to maximize our contribution to the customer. That's what I do every day. Wow. Yeah. So (laughs) can we dig a little deeper into that? Like maybe give an example so the audience may understand a little bit better? Yeah, you bet. You bet. So, you know, we're in the business of we make to order our highly engineered devices to solve some of the world's biggest problems. And that chain starts, you know, with the customer, but then it goes through all sorts of different channels and connection points to actually produce a product, get it shipped and send it out. And we typically call it a, we're a matrixed organization. We're global. And yet in many of our cases, you know, we're working, we have production centers here in the U.S. And 
let's say a salesperson talks to the customer and designs the solution, and then they throw it over the fence to our design team who then works on fulfilling the order and producing it and getting it ready to ship. There's just so many touch points where there can be things like lack of ownership. There's that popular saying that there's the bystander effect. If I thought you were going to do it, Paige, you thought I was going to do it, so therefore no one does it. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So a major part that I play is trying to up the aptitude to meet the standard that between the customer is point touch A and then touch point Z, which is shipping it out. There are so many things that can go wrong because we work literally like an ecosystem. If you forget to take ownership in part B and I got to pick up ownership in part F, then the customer is the one that suffers. The customer is the one that is the recipient of our you know, unreliable, unpredictable, un, you know, not repeatable service. So I try to connect the points between So we basically boil it down to four things that we think take care of the customer. And I'm playing right in the middle with all of the human touch points. So there's ownership, there's courtesy, there's accuracy, and there's timeliness. And within those four things, if we can get those four things right, we think the customer will have a preeminent customer experience. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that though each of those four standards and all of the responsibility of numerous people to make a single, let's say, flow meter – There's breakdown points all the time. And some of the systems that we have are automated, but sometimes we try to work outside the system and then it breaks down, then the customer's at a a loss. So, you know, you'd think, all right, so we're just making a device, putting it together and shipping it out. Well, there's lots of spots that it can go wrong. And then we fail to meet some very important deadlines, often by customers who have responsibilities to start up, to commission their products. So it's a well-oiled machine that I'm just in the middle as a contributor to make sure nothing falls through the cracks. That's great. So if people don't know what Enders and Hazard do, can you kind of explain that? Yeah, we're basically metrology, which is the science of measurement. We help organizations better automate their systems and processes to produce their outcome. You know, if you want to make yogurt, you, you can make yogurt at home and just add two bacteria to it and some milk and heat it up and let it cool and then let it sit. And whether we're talking about yogurt or life sciences or oil and gas or mining or pulp and paper, all of these entities have to measure and they want to try to automate as much as possible for a precise product every time. And that's what we're in the business of. So what is leadership to you? Ooh, well, you know, I'm a bit biased on this page, but as I said earlier, my introduction into the business, you know, all those years ago was really through Stephen R. Covey. It was just, it's my favorite topic of all time. So I could I feel like I could go on forever, <laughs> <laughs> but I would say if I was trying to summarize it just briefly, it would be that leadership is it's collaboration in action. And by that, I mean that Rather than think of the traditional way of leadership, you know, when you think about it, and I'm a book junkie, but when you, most of the leadership books that you read, you immediately, they immediately start going into a person, a personification that leadership is a person. And I'm not saying that every individual doesn't need to exhibit great leadership, but leadership, it's not about just the person. It's about the mutual relationship between the leader and the follower working together in a mutual influence relationship to get the best outcome. And so for me, that's what leadership is. I also think the other part of it, Paige, is that leadership is about leadership development and leadership development is really about self-development, understanding yourself better because in the final analysis, 
you might say human relations isn't about you dealing with others. It's about you dealing with yourself first, then dealing with others. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think is the easiest and the hardest parts about being a leader? Maybe I'll start with the hardest part. In my opinion, one of the hardest parts is, is taking the time to slow down. And while you could say, you know, as a person gets older, maybe they get wiser. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But there can be the temptation as you get wiser to make all kinds of assumptions and kind of try to close the gap and be more efficient. So one of the hardest things, at least for me, is to slow down and realize that, man, the meaning that we put to words, the language can get you into trouble real quick. Well, I kind of feel like that that's a world problem. Like, you know, as we progress in technology, things have just sped up so much. Mm-hmm. Agreed. How do you get to the point where you can slow down? Do you put down the devices? Do you meditate? What do you do? Mm-hmm. I like all those ideas. I certainly do. Advice that was given to me years ago that I'm not world-class at it, but I believe it in my bones is that if we're willing to take time in introspection, not always reflection. Reflection is looking at things after they happen. Introspection is looking at things before they happen. So here's the saying. If you're willing to take time to look at the way that you see things, the way that you see things can change. So what do you call that meditation? Whether you call that just carving out a little time, you know, in the Stephen Covey language, they would call that quadrant two. Taking time as a leader to think about activities, things that are important, or I should say carving out the time is a quadrant to activity. It's important, but not urgent. So to forcing myself, forcing myself every week, I mean, I literally put it in my calendar and I block it so that I can't, no one else can put meetings there for think time. And it's easy to say, well, you know, I I got too much going on. Yeah, you do. But can you afford not to? Because when you take time to look and think and observe about how you think about things, the way that you see things can change. And if you see things differently, you'll do things differently. When you do things differently, you'll get different results. And if so if you're not getting the results you want with your people, with your leadership, with your business, man, you got to back up and s- take a look at how you see it, not your necessarily your behavior because seeing drives the behavior. Yeah. Yeah. So what about the easiest part? Uh, I would say the easiest part, boy, there's several choices here. The easiest part is being able to gather knowledge or the resources that we have, like your podcast. There's so many other great podcasts. There's books, there's information, there's gurus, there's coaches. We have an un- crazy amount of data available to us to help us as leaders sharpen our game, become more wise, slow down, better understand. So that's one of the easiest maybe parts is to, we have a, you know, a plethora of past experiences of leaders who have succeeded and not succeeded that we can learn from. And there is some truth that, you know, you got to kind of cut your teeth. I can tell you about running a marathon all day, but until you actually run one, there is a difference. And yet you can learn a whole bunch to kind of skinny down the time that it takes to become the leader, the manager that you want through the success of others. Fantastic. So if you had a piece of advice to give our audience, what would that be? Well, I probably jumped ahead of myself. (laughs) I would probably say it, maybe I'll reiterate it because there's that saying that says people need to be reminded more than they need to be instructed. So I'll remind you, I love this advice and I know I'm biased on it, but truly when you take time to look at the way you see things, the way you see things can change. That is a powerful that's theorem. very powerful yeah it like takes intentionality page because 
to challenge what you think, to be open to it, to realize that so much of what we think is theory and hasn't been proven. But if you're open to be proven wrong, like any good scientist is, then man, some of my favorite mentors fit that model. They're curious and they're willing to be wrong. And sometimes that can be hard to be in that position. Yeah, I can see that. So speaking of books, which book influenced you the most and why? Well, here again, I jumped ahead of myself a little bit. <laughs> I have to say, I do a lot of running and biking and swimming. So I read and I do Audible. So I get through a lot of books a month. So I have lots and lots of favorites. But my favorite of all time, that my if you had my three adult children on the line right now, they could tell you frontwards and backwards, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen R. Covey. It's a timeless book. It's probably sold 30 million copies, but I hear it in certain circles as merging, re-emerging, just because of the sequential nature of working from, you know, you're dependent on others when you begin your life, and then you move to independence, but then the real magic in life is to get to the spot where you're interdependent. You're able to work and interact with others. And The Seven Habits is just, a, for me personally, a magical way to be proactive, to have a vision for the future, to know what matters most, to think win-win working with others, to listen instead of making yourself always understood, to have synergy, and then to sharpen the saw. It's just a magical formula. And if I'm ever asked, that's my go-to book. Well, let's talk about your book, Don't Pull the Chicken Switch. What's that about? Oh, wow. Thank you yeah, for asking. Maybe like many of us, Many of us want to write a book, and I quickly have, well, I learned through my process of writing my own book, it's a journey. It's painful. Most writers spend their time rewriting, and I've learned that through my own journey. But don't pull the chicken switch. It's taken off that axiom that we tend to chicken out in a lot of places in life. And I'm not just talking about you and I staying on the edge of a cliff and, hey, Paige, we should jump off. It's only 50 feet down into the water. I'm not talking about that kind of pulling the chicken switch. I'm talking about the big, the small, and the medium things that come up into our life where we tend to bail out. It could be simple things like, I'm going to set my alarm and get up. And then the alarm goes off. We can't get the bed off our back. So we chicken out and we don't get up and exercise. To the middle ones, which I need to have a high courage conversation with someone at work, but I have a fear of uncertain outcomes. So I chicken out and I don't have the conversation to the big ones like I'm not getting what I need from my career or from a relationship or something. And rather than have the energy, take massive action, I'm going to chicken out and stay where I am. So the whole book is about how can we be more intentional about making and keeping commitments? And there's just really nothing more important maybe in life. And so many of us, including me, would get more of what we want if we don't pull the chicken switch. And if we carefully choose our choices, because I can make a choice today, and then it's easy for Kit Alois today to make a choice. The hard part is when the future Kit gets the choice that I made in the past, in the future, that's when the troubles show up. Yeah, I want to lose weight right now. It's easy to say that, but am I going to be able to get up every day repeatedly to get the results that I want. We tend to chicken out. And the book talks, it walks you through kind of a nice sequential way to understand why that happens. And then what you can do, and it's not rocket science, but what you can do to stop chickening out. Is it a lack of motivation? I'll sum it up in one word. It's desire. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. I see where we're going here. All right. Yeah. And of course, that's kind of a, almost a reckless, lazy answer to say, but there's a lot of information that I put in, in the page of the book, which I also recorded myself on audio. So you could get it on Audible oh, as well. Oh, that's cool. And you have yeah. a fantastic voice. 
<laughs> what was crazy, Paige? It almost took as much energy and focus to record to audible.com's requirements to get the book as writing the book. I would find <laughs> I bet. I would find I was in the studio reading and suddenly I'm like, wait a minute, I'm saying words that aren't actually on the page here. So I'd have to back up and start over again. You got a little too excited. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which is understandable. I mean, that's a great feat, you know, for writing a book, just like you said, it takes, you know, a lot of energy. And I'm glad you didn't chicken out. <laughs> yes. Thank, that would have been the ultimate, whatever you call it, if I'd bailed out on that one, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. So what would you say is your most used business tool? Let's see. I can hardly fathom it not being a tool today because just two plus years ago, I never used it. And I'm talking about Teams. Uh-huh. It's funny. I was just joking with a colleague maybe last week about, frankly, I feel naked calling someone now. I feel like <laughs> I got to be on camera. Yeah, I totally get that. <laughs> yeah, you know, there is, as our own organization is working through our work from home, work remotely, work virtually versus work in the office. And there's been a number of times I've been on Teams calls where I've been in various parts of the world that my colleagues on the phone didn't even know I was there. And I feel like <laughs> I contributed just as much. So that does make it a, maybe a little bit nicer and but yeah, to be able to see someone's expression and facial cues. And I mean, I've even been called on the carpet a couple of times. Like, you're not looking at the camera. Are you looking at your phone? I mean, these are bold people that I work with, but it's a good tool and something that has become very much a fabric of my being. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely understand that. I'm not a fan myself. I just don't like turning on the video. <laughs> That's really yes. what it is. And it's not a big deal. I mean, you know, we do podcasts and I don't provide video and you know, it's not like I have a face for radio or something. I just, you know, I don't feel like putting on makeup. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you there. Yes, I'm with yeah. you there. So who would you say is your most respected competitor? We know in our space, we have a number of just fantastic competitors. In fact, Anderson Hauser, family-owned business. Several of the competitors also have their origins over, because we're based out of Switzerland, in that part of the world as well. So it's an interesting interconnectedness that we have. Anderson Hauser, at least, well, worldwide, but especially in the U.S., we have been rapidly growing and we don't fixate on it, but there is a clear market leader in our industry and that's Emerson. Okay. And we always teeter-totter about learning as much as we can about them and what they're doing, but also not getting fixated on it because, you know, you read some books and they would say, that's not the way to get to preeminence is fixating on your biggest competitor. And yet we know they're there and they're a respected company and we're trying to emulate what they do well and then surpass them in the you know, positions like mine. If we can get the behavior of our organization optimized, you might call it, you probably heard this term, super fans. The more super fans we can get within our entity is to the degree that we will in fact I mean, we're convinced of this, a more predictable, reliable, repeatable, world-class customer experience. And that's what gets me juiced up every day and why I've been here over 10 years now and love playing in this space. That's fantastic. So what's your most important lesson learned? Ooh, I'll give you a teaser on this. If you read the Don't Pull the Chicken Switch, you'll also pick up on this. I've maybe like most humans have made some really dumb decisions personally, professionally throughout my life. I got three grown children. I got three grandchildren. A couple of them are married. I done lots of things, taken some risks and that kind of thing. So my most important lesson learned through all of the stuff I've navigated through is probably just three words. 
It's be your word. And by that, I mean, if you make a commitment, keep it. And I'm not talking about just for others. I'm talking about to yourself, for yourself and others. If you'll be your word, I'm just personally convinced that's been my greatest lesson learned. And it's the source of helping me get the most in terms of what matters most to me. Yeah. And you have to be very humbled, just very humbled to even go there. And so many people are so hard on themselves, you know, and especially I feel that, you know, myself being a perfectionist or recovering perfectionist rather. (laughs) (laughs) But I have to remember, you know, keep promises to myself, be kind to myself. So I definitely understand that. That's a great point. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that because, you know, I'm not just talking about make a commitment to go to the gym and then you do it, but make a commitment to to be kind to yourself, to give yourself some space, to be okay that, you know, your house is messy or that you weren't able to completely satisfy every single employee you have to the maximum of their capability. I mean, be okay with that and then keep that word to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Very important, everyone. So why do you think your role is important to the future of our industry, Kit? Mm, Yeah. What's fascinating is twice a year, we conduct a leadership journey summit here in Indiana, and our top 141 leaders come in, and it's a three-day event. Two hours of the three days, we invite six customers to come and be on a panel, and our CEO interviews them. And it's the most popular piece of the three days. Because of our 141 leaders, we've got folks from all our entities, not just from the direct customer facing. And I mean, we're finding that our customers, what their expectations are, are just rapidly growing. The space to digitize and to automate everything in the lieu of the great you know, resignation and just shortages and all that, it's higher than it's ever been. So the demands by our customers are immense. And then the demands from their customers who they're selling their items to is also immense. And so where I think my particular role and a focus on the organizational behavior of our organization, the organizational health, you could call it, is that the degree that we can maximize this idea of super fans, of ensuring that our employees have a preeminent employee experience and not just our customers. In fact, you could say predicated on a great customer experience is a great employee experience. So my role is how can we think in terms of the system? How can we ensure that we're maximizing every available angle and opportunity for our employees to feel complete, to feel whole. And I'm not talking about, you know, foosball machines and that kind of thing. But again, if people are more similar than different, if you believe that a person's behavior is a function of that person in their environment, and we as managers here, we own a big chunk of that environment. And a lot of us come, we grow up through the ranks, whether we're a great salesperson, great person operations, we've never really thought about or taken the time to really dig deep about what is it that creates an optimal environment. And it doesn't have to be pool tables, nothing wrong with those, but it's a lot more robust than that to be able to optimize the behavior of the organization to deliver the output for the customer. So it's like a retreat in a way. Say more. (laughs) Everybody comes together, you have this powwow, you get interviewed, you become closer, you get to understand the customer's needs more, you know, kind of like a retreat. Everybody goes off and just... Yeah, no, no. I'd say that's definitely part of the cocktail, if you want to say. Okay. Also in that cocktail is things like performance management, 
things like managing expectations, things like creating a psychologically safe, and that's a very popular term, but a safe environment for employees. And not just talking safety, you're not going to get hit by a tree falling, but in an environment where I can come into work and say and express what I'm thinking, you know, within professional ramifications or not. And a lot of organizations here included, we're still working on the formula to, we're attracting some really fantastically talented young engineers and they come in, they're very technically eloquent and able to, you know, engineer the heck out of the process. What about being able to interact and dialogue between the fact that you may be a world-class engineer, but what if you have to work with someone in fulfillment who maybe has a chip on their shoulder about working with you, or they aren't as receptive to getting the information that you need in such a timely manner. There's just so many human dynamics in making a beautifully engineered product. I mean, think about life, think about relationships, whatever it be with your kids. Language is what makes the world go around. And so many of us, we take for granted that just because I say something, you're going to either understand or be willing to do it. My role is to help increase the aptitude. It's kind of like, you know, if my kids and now my grandkids love Chick-fil-A, you go to Chick-fil-A, you typically get a pretty predictable, great experience for most people. Most people like Chick-fil-A, it seems like. Now, if those high school students then go on to college and then they, let's say they land here at Anderson Houser, my experience is those young people, they have a higher aptitude higher awareness of what it takes to take care of the customer. And in many cases, Paige, I'm not just talking about the external customer. What about the customer that sits across the hall from you that's in a different department? That's a customer as well. And so to the degree that we here at Anderson Houser can increase the aptitude, you know, synonymous with a Chick-fil-A experience in terms of awareness and being pleasant and taking ownership and being accurate and courteous and timely – is the degree that we'll navigate through our problems quicker so that we can take care of all of our customers better. How's that for a long-winded answer? I like that a lot. And a uh, matter of fact, right before you said language, I went love languages. Yes. Relate, because of relationships. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you know, there's all sorts of instruments out there on a professional level that basically measure your professional love language. Okay. And our organization has done them as well. You know, I don't put all my eggs in that basket, but I'm a huge fan. If I understand if you're a doer, a talker, or an analyzer, or I guess there's four basic ones and there's colors and all that kind of thing. But to the degree you can understand that, that's an awareness. And with a more awareness comes more choice. And one of my passions on the side is to teach a sales class that we do here at Anderson Hauser. And I mean, that's one of the cruxes of the course is if with more knowledge comes more awareness. And you could even say knowledge is the prelude to change. So if another one of my, you know, my roles might be here to help keep the momentum high that if we want people to change, because we're always asking people to change because everything's changing, knowledge is the prelude to change. Very good. Very, very good. So Kit, do you have a favorite podcast? Ooh. (laughs) I know you're all about Audible and, you know, all the books and stuff, but do you listen to the podcast? Yes, yes. I have several I listen to. I have to give a shameless plug for I love doing the ultra marathons and the Ironmans. There's a cool podcast. It's called Everyday Ultra. And Joe on there, he's kind of the podcaster guy. He just breaks down weekly just all of the fascinating components of putting your body through crazy amount, number of hours out on the trail running these ultra marathons. So, you know, an ultra is anything longer than 26 miles. 
So on, wow. you know, on a personal, <laughs> yeah. Well, on a personal note, I mean, that's I love the self-inflicted pain of doing these ultra marathons. You learn so much about yourself. So I love Joe's podcast, and he's got a whole bunch of other you know folks that podcast as well. But that's probably one of my favorites. That's great. And if people don't know, Menderson Hauser actually sponsor Oil & Gas HSC with Russell Stewart. So check that out. All right. Thank you so much for joining me, Kit. If people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about Endress Hauser, how might they go about doing so? Yep. Our address is pretty simple. It's just www.endress, which is E-N-D-R-E-S-S.com. And that'll put you right to us. All right. And I'll make sure to put all the links in the show notes for everybody. So be easy to find. I'll provide your LinkedIn if people want to reach out to you and get to know more about your book. All right. Well, that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com. Yeah.